God who loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son, <clears throat> that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. That's not talking about physically laying our life down because that will happen with all of this if Jesus doesn't come first. But the truth is that we won't die. <clears throat> the real you, the real Kent. We see the body, we see the house that Kent is, is in right now. But... Uh, that may, if Jesus doesn't come, that, that will be laid in the grave one day. We were, Joyce and I were, this is on my heart, I guess, because yesterday we went to a funeral for Pastor Roland Weaver, who we've known for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. And uh, he uh, died of a heart attack. He had had no physical things, issues or anything, but they were at a place, they went to a cabin <clears throat> just north of Hibbing. He's from Hibbing, he served at the church there for 34 years, uh, got connected with him through Gospel Crusade in Strawberry Lake, and uh, at Strawberry Lake, and a week ago Friday, he, we were, he and his wife were at a cabin that they went to. Friday and Saturdays each week before coming back for Sunday services and stuff. And he had been out doing his normal stuff. He had plowed the driveway. It must have been some snow and and uh, went snowmobiling. Some rough riding came in. He took a nap and got up and his, he had pain around his shoulder and and he thought it was probably from the rough ride on the snowmobile first, and then he said, "You know, Bula, that was that's his wife, Bula." He said, "I think it maybe is my heart. You better call 911." So she went to call 911, came back, and he was gone. So she started to do the heart pounding on the chest and. And uh, she had 911 on the phone and said, okay, now I'll go to the mouth. And she put his head back to, to give him the air. And at that point, he got the, she said the big, <clears throat> biggest smile on his face and, and he went home. Big smile, I went home to be with the Lord. You know, we're going to be here as long as the Lord would have it. We want to stay and we want to work for him. But you know what? For Roland, he's in the glory now because he knew the Lord. And for those 34 years, even before that, that's what he was doing. He was just telling people about Jesus. He told a lot of people about Jesus. 
And that's what we want to be doing because that day will come for each of us when we make that transition. For him, it was so sudden. And that's what made, you know, the church was packed, packed and they had overflow rooms and so forth. And I, kn I knew the pastor that officiated to Tim Rice. He's a pastor of Detroit Lakes. And, but the grace of God was over his wife, Beulah. She said that. What did she say, Joyce? said, he's covering me, but we can pray for them now. And for that church, it's meeting right now, too. And Lord, we just lift up that church in Hibbing. We pray for the people. pray for Roland's wife. We pray for your children, grandchildren. And we pray that the vision may continue. We'll go forward. But Lord, we're so thankful that you loved Roland so much that you gave his, your son for him, just like you did for us. And we thank you for the empowering. We just pray for a place of revival and renewal in that church there in Hibbing, Minnesota, in that city. The whole city would be touched. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. I'm praying for good things for Mathis coming up here this week. His heart is going to be in great shape. It's going to get there. Tuesday, Wednesday, Lord, we just thank you for that. We lift up Mathis before you. We thank you for our little brother. We love him. We pray for him today. We thank you that everything's going to go well. It's going to be just fine. It's going to go well. It's going to go well. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Thank you for your hand upon all of us and your love, your great love for us, the songs we sang, good, good God, you are to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand again? We've got you sitting, and we'll release the kids. Sixth grade on down, and then also greet each other. Greet someone you don't know, maybe. Okay, we'll have a few announcements here before we have... Peter and Linnea share the word for us this morning. I have a couple quotes, actually, I think they'll be on the screen too, from Gordon Robertson, um, host at the Seven Under Club. He made these two statements. He says, if you don't teach tithing and generosity, you're not teaching the gospel. It kind of stood out to me when he said that, so I jotted it down. If you don't teach tithing and generosity, you aren't teaching the gospel. And then he also said this, he says, you literally transform yourself with the act of giving. And we know that lines right up with this scripture. It's just, this is actually a scripture that's right above our offering and tithe boxes in the back in the little picture frame. It's Acts 20, 35. It says, 
the last part of the verse, for we must always cherish the words of our Lord Jesus, who taught, giving brings a far greater blessing than receiving. That's the Passion Translation. There's a footnote there. In that translation, it says the Aramaic has an expression that speaks of extravagant generosity. And it's this that flows from this verse. Blessed are those who try to give more than they've been given. The thing with that is the more we give, the more that we will be receiving that we can in turn give again. Our tithe and offering boxes are on the back walls, and Lord, we just pray over those tithes and offerings that we give. We thank you that you receive them in the Spirit, so giving unto you, and then you do multiply them that we may sow again and even more. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. There is no fellowship meal after the service today. I think you've seen, it's probably up on the screen, there are nine o'clock opportunities that we have as well on Sunday mornings and then lots of activities on Wednesday coming up. If you're a quilter or a sewer, we're looking for more quilters and sewers on Wednesdays. There's a Bible study, and then we have the children's and youth ministries later in the afternoon. Our financial report for last year and then budget for next year, they're available on the counter by the mailboxes if you'd like to see them. Uh, March 7, there'll be a baby shower, shower, and you can sign up at the, the foyer where the balloons are there. Uh, for that, that's for Abby Cooley and the little baby on the way. Kind of for Doug, too, I suppose, but he's connected there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, so your email is needed there too if you didn't put that on before. And then I think I saw my brother Tim. Tim made it back from Egypt. Welcome back, Tim. Good to see you. God bless you and that. Hallelujah. Thanks for praying for us as we went down to Joyce's family last week. We were with them, had a good time with Joyce's cousins, the lady cousins it was. And um, we had a good trip. Had a good trip. I believe we're going to leave it at that. And thank you for your anointing on these two, Lord. Peter and Leah. God bless them and us and our ears to hear what you say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, everyone. Morning. <laughs> I think I will just start out with some prayer here. So, Lord, thank you. We, we just thank you for this time, and we just ask that we would speak your words, that you would just flow through us and um, touch the hearts of everyone here and have them hear exactly what they need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Ben, you can put the first slide up there. Um, we're happy to be here. Um, my wife can tell you, uh, was, I, was I looking so great yesterday, hon? Oh, not so great. <laughs> the draining, he's, the, he's the headaches. Doing the, better. You know, so I'm feeling good this morning. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Uh, Naya was sick too a couple of days ago, so we're both uh, thanking the Lord that we can be here well, well enough to speak to you. You might want to wash your hands though after you, you shake ours after the service. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, good. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the Word of God and specifically the, the character of the God that this, this book describes. Um, I've been thinking back to when I was, just as we were singing there, to when I was a kid and I would read this book. And to be honest, I, I didn't, didn't quite enjoy it as much as I do now. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in that place in your life, but um, when I read it, I opened it up and I was just trying to look for what it was trying to tell me, right? All right, what am I supposed to do? This is supposed to be the instructions, right? All right, where's my instructions? Is kind of the mindset that I had going into this book. Um, and what that resulted in usually was me not reading this book. Um, but as I've grown older, uh, and as I've studied it more, I, I've come to fall in love with the God that this book describes. And I found that what uh, opens my eyes to what the words are trying to say to me, uh, what opens my eyes to who uh, our God is, is when I look for who he is in this book, when I'm reading it and I'm asking, all right, what are you, what are you saying about yourself, God? What are you saying about who you are and who you are to us? Uh, so we thought as we were just, we've been kind of learning about that lately uh, in our walk, and so we thought we might talk about that today, uh, the character of our God. Uh, and we're going to do that by, by looking at a very short section of scripture. We're going to kind of be uh, talking about what that scripture means and maybe some of the conclusions that we can come to in that particular little section about who our God is. And of course, the whole book, you'd have to read it years, a lifetime really of studying it to really understand even uh, a fraction, I think, of who our God is as is uh, written down here. So today we're giving you a little piece, and uh, we hope it's a good piece. Um, so I think a good way to come at this book is uh, to understand what's, what kind of things are in it, and if you, when you read it, you find that there's a lot of stories, right? Uh, there's a lot of stories about people and characters, and namely characters who are interacting with um, our God um, throughout all of history. Um, and I think a good way to describe this book as it's careful selections of history that showcase the way in which God chooses to interact with his people. Uh, we need to remember that these, sto these stories are being told in a time, though, when the, major the, the, the major form of communication between peoples was that storytelling. Um, so this morning, I want us to put on maybe our imagination caps, uh, kind of go back in time a little bit and to imagine what that was like. Um, you can imagine maybe people sitting around a fire at night, they're telling stories, um, and you hear maybe the people, some of the other people, maybe it's a campsite, they've, they've come up in their wagons, uh, and they're telling you about, oh, their great myths and their stories, they have all these gods, they did all these great things, how amazing they are. Uh, and you, you're an Israelite person, you know the one true God. And so you start telling them your stories. Um, and the people are, you're telling them to are, are, are shocked. They're amazed. These stories are, are vastly different than the stories that they know about their gods and the way that they interact with them. 
this God that you're talking about doesn't act like some temperamental child like your God does, maybe. This God has no rivals. He's completely sovereign. And he chooses to gently lead people over generations and generations. Um, he has no beginning. He has no end. Uh, and just like a shepherd, he cares for these sheep. He cares for his people. He values and he loves them. Uh, so these stories, I think, were radical redefinitions. We kind of read them as, all right, these are the Bible stories. We've heard them a thousand times. But for the people who first heard them and the people that I think the apostles would have brought them to, these were radical redefinitions of how people thought about their relation to God. And there still are today, I think, if we look at them as a description of who is our God, what's the character of our God. Because if you go out and you talk to people in the world, people are still confused about how do you interact with God? What's his character? Um, all right, so I think it's a revelation of who he is uh, and who we are and who we're becoming as followers of Christ. Um, and it seems fitting to me that when Jesus came, he was doing the same thing, right? How did he communicate to the people most often? Uh, he was communicating through stories. Uh, and I think that's, that's a wonderful thing, stories. Uh, and of course, we call them uh, parables, right? Uh, but I think that word parable sometimes does what Jesus was doing, a little bit of a bad turn. Um, all right, good. Ben's, Ben's on track with me. Excellent. Um, so the dictionary, I looked this up in the dictionary, and I think this is just the worst definition of a parable. Uh, the dictionary defines it as a simple story used just to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Uh, and I think that just that shrinks down what Jesus was doing way too much. Um, there's just there's so much more to what Jesus was doing. Um, he often uh, begins parables by telling his audience that his, the story that he's about to tell is an illustration of what the kingdom of God is like. Um, now think about what he, who he was telling these stories to. Um, they're these suppressed Jewish people. They're being occupied by this foreign empire um, who we know from history, uh, these people were just on the edge of revolt. They didn't like their king. They didn't like the kingdom they were in. The character of the kingdom and the character of their king was pretty plain to them. Um, it's full of greed. It's full of violence. It's full of this assertion of um, this king thinks he's like a deity. He thinks he's the best. He thinks his ways are best. He thinks his people are best. And he's just going to take from you because he thinks he's, he owns you. Um, that's, that's the world these people are living in. So Jesus is coming around and he's declaring a new king and a new kingdom. That's big news. That's something that's grabbing your attention if you're hearing that on the street. Um, so Jesus is acting like this crier. He's declaring, a new king is come. And of course, we know that new king is him. So that's a pretty big deal. You're meeting the new king right there on the street. Um, and so we find that these audiences, though, were often shocked and appalled <laughs> um, by what Jesus is preaching about this new king. Um, and it usually had to do with the character of that king, because as we remember, these people were expecting a new king to come. They were expecting a Messiah to deliver them from these foreign empires, these evil people. And the character of the person they were expecting was this warrior, right? He was going to be big, strong. He's going to chop off the head of Caesar, that kind of thing. Um, and the person they were meeting on the street didn't quite look like that picture. He had a different character. He was serving the sick and the poor. He was serving... Um, the forgotten, the downtrodden. Um, he was preaching a message of peace, a message of loving your neighbor as yourself, a message of laying down <laughs> rather than picking up arms. Um, so this is something that people were maybe a little bit confused by, but it was something that also grabbed their attention. This is different than what I expected. Um, 
And I just think of how all the times Jesus had to probably shake his head at how ironic it was that the people who knew the most about God in the world, these Israelite people uh, in that society, and especially the leaders of that society, didn't even recognize him when he was standing there. Um, so I think there's something to that too. Jesus was preaching about the character of God to the people who should have known that, the character best, but they didn't. They had forgotten what the stories meant. They were using the stories as a rule book. They were using those stories as, oh, this is our tradition, this is our culture. They had forgotten to see the stories as a declaration of who God is. So I think it's important that we do that and not be like those Israelites who are saying to Jesus right there, you're not God, I don't, you don't understand who God is, right? So we, we don't want to do that to Jesus. You don't know, he knows. Um, so given all that, I think it's important that we open up this word together, study some of the descriptions of our king, and learn to recognize the nature of who Jesus is. And uh, uh, all right, going through my notes here. So today we're going to look at just one of Jesus' parables, one of his teachings, one of his declarations of what the kingdom is like. Um, and today we're going to be looking at... Um, uh, and you can flip to the next slide, Ben. Uh, we'll be looking at the parable of the talents uh, that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. I don't know if you're familiar with that. The, the quick summary of it is there's, uh, you probably remember it maybe if you've read through the Gospels. Uh, I think it's, it's told in maybe several of the Gospels, but it's a story of, he's a, there's a rich man. He gives three different amounts of money to three different servants, right? He gives five talents to one, three talents to another, or was it two? I think, it's, I think it's two. And then one talent to the last guy. And we remember the, the guy with the one talent, he wasn't a very good servant. He buried, buried it in the ground, and then he gets thrown out into the outer darkness with the gnashing of teeth and, teeth and the weeping. Um, now, even me just saying that summary of that story, we kind of have it in our heads. We're probably sitting there thinking, say, Peter, that doesn't quite sound like uh, what you were going for here. You're trying to describe the character of God. That sounds like you're just telling me a moral lesson about what not to do with my money. Um, so what I want to do today is look at this, to, to go carefully um, through the sections of this verse, and, think, and I want us to think of it as a story. I want us to think of it as um, how these people would have heard it as describing the kingdom of God. And I think it does if we pick it apart we can see that it describes this wonderful, good father who, um, as in our uh, title here, we call the character of the invitational master. Um, and in the first slide, we won't go back to it, but we subtitled this, How God is Not a Taskmaster, but He Invites Us to Know Him and Then Be Fundamentally Changed by Him. Um, so I think the real problem of reading parables, like just simple moral lessons, is that they go through that same process that happens when you repeat a word over and over again. You know, you say, oh, um, rooftops, 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 rooftops. And suddenly you're, you're, you're barking like a dog when you're not really making any words. You know, it, it loses its meaning over time. And I think the same thing happens to these little stories. We, we hear the story and we immediately jump to the moral that we kind of just understand it to be. And we don't really think about what the story is actually saying. Because uh, we got to remember, the audience, they're hearing these stories and they're, wow, this is amazing. These are things we've never really heard or thought about before. Um, I don't think we're supposed to just skip right to the point. We're supposed to sort of mull over these stories. We're supposed to walk away and be thinking, like, that story touched me and hit me in a certain way. And I, I've got to think about what that means. Um, so some typical ways uh, we read 
I think the talents parable, maybe some of the lessons we've gleaned over time is uh, maybe first up, don't be lazy. Or maybe it's better to take risks than to just act out of fear. Um, maybe it's be the best or else. Maybe it's weakness and timidity just makes God angry. Uh, maybe it's proper money management is godly, but improper money management is sinful. Um, perhaps it's, it's your duty to use your gifts and your talents for the Lord in such a way that they profit God. Or maybe it's if you don't use your gifts and talents right, or you don't use them to profit God, you're being a bad Christian. Uh, now, I'll caveat here and say, now, if you've ever heard a message preached where they said something along those lines, I maybe worded it here to maybe kind of a little differently than say maybe some, some other preachers would say or whatever. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with maybe gleaning some of these lessons. Obviously, we shouldn't be lazy. Obviously, we should um, do right by the money that we're given or right by the gifts and the talents that we're given by God. We should use those well. I'm not saying anything against those, but I think if we're, those are our sole takeaways from this story, I think we're sort of maybe missing part of the point. Um, and maybe missing part of what the story's trying to say about the character of God. Because if you look up here, you'll notice that what this is, all, all is is just instructions of what to do and instructions about what you're supposed to be. Um, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot about God if you look at it that way. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, next slide, Ben. And again, I want us to put on our imagination caps, be in that space. I have this picture here. Imagine dusty streets. You have this, this preacher. He's saying a word, and, it, and it's catching your attention. There's an audience growing around. People are coming off the street. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's fun. All right. So next slide, Ben. Have the verses here. So we'll read through it together. So it starts. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a faraway country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to the one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one, each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on his journey. Then he who had received the five talents went, and he traded with them, and he made another five talents. And likewise, he who received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. All right. So let's talk about this a little bit. So off the bat, first off the bat, um, the first line should sort of arrest your attention. Here we have a wealthy man. He's going on a long journey. And like you would do if you planned on being absent for a long time, you would have someone watch over your affairs. Uh, but instead of having his son or maybe his relatives like you would expect, um, who does this man call? Uh, he calls his servants. So people who in that culture who would have been considered second-class citizens, um, people of no consequence, the kind of people who are, who are probably standing in that crowd, <laughs> the kind of, you were probably a servant listening to the story. That grabbed your attention. He gave what to the who? Like me? That's kind of the response I think we're supposed to get here. Um, and here, these people, these servants, these lower-class people, are being entrusted with their whole master's estate. Um, so this would be like, I think, your boss coming up to you and saying, you know what, I'm going to be gone for a while, so I would actually like you to run the company in my stead. Um, this is a big honor he's giving to these servants, uh, and probably something none of the people in that crowd had ever actually witnessed in their life. This is your dream situation. Um, 
And notice, I think this is an important thing here that sometimes we miss. The master gives each to their own ability. Um, This is a master who cares enough about his lowly servants to know their individual characters. Um, This is like your boss telling you to run the company because he's been watching you and is acknowledging your potential and rewarding you simply for being yourself. He sees who you are. He knows that you have potential. He knows that you can do it. He trusts you. (laughs) He knows you. He's worked with you. Um, So next, I want us to talk about the talents themselves. And I want to go to the next slide, Ben. Uh, Oftentimes, I think this is the picture we see, right, Um, in our heads. We have a picture of this, this, this master. He's come back to settle accounts, and we have, what, 12 coins on the table, maybe? Um... And even just look at this picture. I think this is a perfect picture. This guy, does he look like a very nice guy? (laughs) Do those servants look like they're really excited to have to be settling accounts with this guy with their 12 coins? And you feel kind of bad for this guy, right? He's he's got his one coin. He's going to be thrown out in the outer darkness because he didn't come back with two coins. Um, It seems kind of like a miserly way. Even this guy in this picture, he looks kind of like kind of a Scrooge, you know? Oh, you didn't bring back one more coin? What's wrong with you? Um... So next slide, Ben. Uh, so we're, I want us to get that image out of our heads. Get the coins image. These guys aren't walking around jangling a couple of coins in their pockets. Um, this is what the talents really are. Um, the talents are, were a measurement of monetary weight, usually gold or silver uh, in ancient biblical times. Uh, these, this, the talent was the largest measurable amount of wealth. <laughs> uh, this is a big amount of money. Uh, They weighed about 75 pounds each. They're big. (laughs) Um, Scholars estimate that a single talent would equal somewhere between one year to 20 years. They're not quite sure. Uh, But 20 years of wages. So this is all in one place. It's like your boss saying, um, here's here's your entire year's worth, or here's 20 years worth of your money in a a lump sum right there in front of you. You've probably never seen that much money in your life, and you probably never will. Um, some estimate that the guy with five talents was being trusted with uh, multi-millions in, uh, in by today's standards. Uh, not pocket change. Uh, so next slide, Ben. While we're picturing the story, picture people lugging around heavy treasure chests. <laughs> uh, not jangling coins. We're not, we're not the miserly picture. This is, this is a treasure trove we're talking about. This is this guy's entire estate. These are this guy's life savings being entrusted uh, to these servants. Um, So you can go to the next slide, Ben. So what do these guys do with the money is the next thing that we have to look at. Uh, Well, to start, it's fairly clear that the rich man is placing this money in his servant's hands so they can look after it. We see that it's um, his goods that he's delivering to his servants, um, and even the, it says that the, the man with the one talent hid his Lord's money. It's understood that it's their money. Because uh, sometimes I think we read this story kind of strangely, like he gave it to them, it was theirs, but then he came back to settle accounts like they owed him something, and it's kind of, no, they're supposed to watch over it in the understanding that he's coming back. <laughs> he's coming back to get it. Um, it's his money. Uh, and naturally, they don't, the first two street servants don't treat it like it's theirs. If they, this guy had given them this billion dollars, do you think they'd be going out? Uh, what do you think they would do with it? They would spend it, right? They would live on it. they say, hey, I'm going to buy my wife pretty things. I'm going to buy a new home if they thought it was theirs, but they didn't. What do they do with it? Uh, we see they traded with it or they invest it, right? 
Um, and for the sake of the story, when you invest, what or who is doing the work there? It's the money, right? The money's doing the work when you invest it. Um, those servants would have nothing to trade um, without their master's money. So when they're investing, it's not them doing this uh, brunt of the work. Uh, it shows them letting the master's money do its work. Um, we could almost imagine this is the kind of work this guy would have been doing um, while he was there. He was trading, he was investing, he was accumulated wealth through these means. Then the servants are just uh, living in the image, you could say, of their master. They were living like their master. They were copying their master. They had worked under him, they had watched him, and now they were doing just like he would do. They were letting the money work for itself, and they were getting profit in return, just like he would do. Um, now, just imagine with me the man with one talent. <laughs> what makes him different? Um, so, just imagine the situation. There's a man who's planning on leaving for a very long time, and it says he's been gone for a long, long time in a faraway place and in a time period where taking a long trip is often kind of dangerous. <laughs> you often, you don't come back. <laughs> and especially if he's been gone for a long time, you might assume, I bet he died along the way. Maybe he's gone. Um, so if you saw that servant with these big 75-pound chests full of gold and he's burying it in the ground, what, what do you think he's, he's planning to do with that money? What do you think he's doing that for? Um, I think he's trying to steal it. <laughs> uh, just imagine that picture. A man is burying a treasure chest in the ground. What does that immediately bring to mind? It's like, it's like a pirate. It's like someone hiding treasure. It's someone, he, he knows where it's buried. He's hiding it for himself, I think. Um, he's hoping that the master doesn't come back. Uh, and at a safe time, when he knows that the master's gone, he's going to steal it and take away it and claim it for himself. This is uh, the opposite of what the other two guys have done. The two guys, they're treating it like it's not their money. They're using it as if it was uh, their master's money and preparing it for when he comes back. This man is taking ownership himself. He thinks he is the master of this money. He thinks he has earned it himself. Uh, so with these descriptions of the servants, uh, what we really start to see here is a pair of servants who are faithful to who their master is, uh, continue to see themselves as servants, and the other who is taking opportunity of a situation that he thinks uh, he can claim power and position for himself in. Uh, so next slide, then. So we get the next part of the story. The master does come back. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, uh, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you have delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And he said, well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over these few things, but I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And remember, the few small piddly things he's talking about here are treasure troves of gold piled up behind these people. Multi-millions, remember, and he's calling that, that's, that's nothing. Uh, I'm going to make you ruler. Uh, so that's the character of this God. So this is probably the most astounding section of the story. If you were that servant class person standing in the crowd, this is, this is your wildest fantasy dream here. Um, this is how good this master is. 
Um, imagine that situation. Your boss tells you to temporarily he's to run the company for him. Uh, he recognizes your potential. He trusts you. And you diligently watch over the company while he's gone. You do your best. You remember the kinds of things your boss did to make the business prosper. And so you, like, likewise, you cause it to prosper. It's benefited. You've watched over it well. And when that boss returns, instead of just taking his old job back and saying, well, thanks for watching it, bud, um, he tells you, the job, it's yours to keep. And not only that, all the profits that you earned for the sake of the company, um, they're yours, free of charge, no, no strings attached, they're all yours. And not only that, he's actually going to make you the CEO of the entire corporation. You're going to be ruler over many things. I'm going pr to promote you right here and now, just for doing what I told you to do. Whoa, <laughs> who wouldn't want that? Um, that's a dream come true for these people. Uh, that's the kind of boss you would want to work for, and probably not the kind of boss these people did work for. This doesn't look like the person or the master that you serve. Uh, so next slide, Ben. So then the other man comes up, and he says, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed, and I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, uh, there, have what is yours. Uh, so this is, I think, part of maybe the hang-up of the story for us sometimes. We're not sure what to, how to take this man's, uh, this man's story. We're not sure what we're supposed to be gleaning from it. So, um, so for the audience uh, who's following this story thus far, after just seeing those incredible promotions, um, just imagine how amazing that scene is. Wow, all this, all this wealth, it's yours. New job, it's yours. New position, it's yours. I understand you, I trust you, I love you. Um, this guy with the one talent, he stood there and he's watched this whole ceremony. He's watched as these promotions have been given. And would you characterize that master as a hard man? Would you say that that's a fair assessment of what kind of master this person is. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think one of the major problems with this parable is that we take that servant's word at face value. And sometimes I think um, in the worst readings, we actually think that that's what we're supposed to take away, that God is a hard man. Uh, and maybe part of the other problem is that we, sometimes I think we have a problem pitying this guy. We feel sorry for him. Um, we wonder whether he's really getting a fair shake. Maybe he, he just didn't know, right? Maybe he just, he didn't get it right. He, shouldn't you give him a second chance? Isn't kind of throwing him into the outer darkness kind of, kind of extreme? <laughs> Is that the character of this guy? Um, so I think we got to stop feeling sorry for this guy. Because if we want to believe that our God is fully just, fully right in the way he does things, that um, the way he describes this man, this man with the one talent, he's describing the type of person who doesn't fit into the kingdom of heaven. Um, I think we got to stop feeling sorry for him. I don't think he, we got we to gotta see him for what he is. So next slide, Ben. Um, I think this, this, this kind of helps. The hard man, what does it mean when he says he's a hard man? Well, in the Greek, uh, the word is skleros. Um, and just, just imagine that. Uh, the word hard, maybe in the English language, um, that might be kind of you know, has this sort of sound like, oh, weren't you being too hard on him, John? You know, oh, sorry, Martha. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, 
but imagine someone coming up to you saying, you're a real scleros. Uh, does that sound like a nice thing? Even just the way that the language sounds, scleros. Ugh. You don't want to be called that. Um, and the meaning here, it sounds like it sounds. It's hard, rough, violent, harsh, bitter, bitter and stern. Uh, it comes from the root word scalo, which means to dry, literally like a desert. So the image here is like a wasteland um, and is related to our English word skeleton. Um, so it's the very opposite image of abundance and wealth and richness and life. It's like an image of death, <laughs> essentially. This is an insult. This is a big insult. It's made by a desperate man who never had a revelation of the character of who his master truly was. Instead, he's blinded by this preconceived notion of what masters are supposed to be like. They're supposed to be violent. They're supposed to be bitter. They're supposed to be utterly devoid of warmth or humanity. Uh, he's not getting it. He's not, he saw this whole thing. He's still not getting it. Uh, so let me attempt to paraphrase uh, what I think actually captured the heart of what this resp man's response is. Uh, I think this is what it would have sounded like to them. Uh, he comes up and he says, Lord, uh, I actually think that you're a real jerk. Uh, and, I had, and I think the expectations that you placed on me were just, they're just plain unfair. Um, you're, I, let's, let's be honest, you're probably just like all the other masters. You're bitter, you're unfair, uh, you expect too much, you're hard, you're cruel, um, you're devoid of any life or, or connection to my class. Um, that's what you're probably really like, right? Um, so why did I bury it? Um, uh, because of that. I was scared and intimidated by that, that idea of you. Um, so that's why I buried it. Not because I was trying to steal it. No way. I'm faithful. Uh, uh, please, please still keep me around. I'm, I'm a great servant. Uh, uh, see, look, I, I brought it back. I, I, I totally thought you were coming back. Didn't touch a single piece of gold. It's all there. It's all yours. Yours. Uh, not mine. <clears throat> And I think that's kind of this guy's, he's, he's, he's spinning a story. <laughs> he's, he's trying to make up and justify. Why, why did you bury it? I mean, you can imagine the conversation. Oh, a little, little dirt on there, bud. What, 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 did you bury it? Oh, well, yeah, uh, because uh, it's your fault. He's pointing the finger. It's your fault. I buried it because of who, you, you're just a bad guy. You're just a bad guy. And it's your fault. You can only blame yourself. <clears throat> that's, I think, what this guy's saying. Um, so I think seeing it that way, do you kind of start to get the picture of why this guy represents the opposite of the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> the opposite of what the character of God is? Um, so the next verse, Ben. So the master responds. <laughs> he says, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So if you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers at least, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Now, take that talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. Uh, so, the master, of course, isn't having any of that bogus story. Um, he calls him out right away. He says, um, if your assessment had really been me that I was just some sort of hard, cruel master, uh, if you thought I was the kind of person who just cared about profit, um, you, would have, you could have at least done the least amount of effort. You could have put it in the bank, you could have dumped it, wiped your hands of it and walked away, and I would have called you a faithful servant, even for doing that least amount. You wouldn't have had to look like these other guys and done all this stuff. You could have done that little bit, that little mustard seed of thing, and I would have called you faithful, and I would have called you a good servant nonetheless. Um... 
Now, this is brilliant storytelling here, I think. Um, what's really in question at this point in the story? Is it really about what the servant did with the money? No. The master says right here that he didn't really care if the servant did what the other two did. The fact that they invested their money and doubled their profit isn't what made him happy with them. He could have done the least amount of effort, dumped it in the bank, right? And he would have been pleased and called that servant faithful. Um, does a master even care about the money at all? <laughs> it doesn't seem so, because he just gives it away. Instead of saying, give me that, that talent back, he says, just give it to that guy over there. The profit, it didn't mean anything to me. The profit just goes to the servants in the end. The servants are the ones who profit. So what's in question here? The last verse of the story, and I think what the point is, usually where you put the point of the story at the end. So for everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the dark outer darkness, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we get the uh, end of the story. We see what happens to the unfaithful servant, um, the consequences. Um, but it's this, this line right here that I, the, it almost sounds like a paradox, right? From who, him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. What does that mean? Um, so I think Jesus is leaving it intentionally vague here. Remember, these are stories that you're supposed to ponder, think about. Uh, what is it really then, I think is the question we're supposed to ask, that the first two servants had and the last servants did not have. <laughs> it wasn't talents. They all had talents. They all had money. They were all given gifts. Um, and in the end, we find that the money is counted as just part of what um, the even what he has part will be taken away. So, what he, so there was something else that he didn't have. It wasn't that he had the least amount of money given to him, because that was the master being good and saying, I favor you. I say that you are worth this 20 years worth of wages. So that's a pretty big honor. The one talent isn't uh, saying you're worse than these other guys. It's, it's a big honor still. Um, there's something else that he didn't have. And I think the answer is really in that, that response. I think you, I knew you to be a hard man. He thought, or at least he pretended like he knew the character of his master. But his selfish actions revealed that he didn't know the master at all. And the grand irony of it is <laughs> that if he had known the character of the master the way his colleagues did, he would have received as a free gift what he, exactly what he tried to take for himself. And so much more besides. How are we doing? You guys <laughs> hanging in there? <laughs> so, um, hopefully we're not, like, going to be going too over. But, so, isn't he amazing? Oh, my goodness. He's just so amazing. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about some application areas. I have, like, three specific real areas kind of tying in exactly with what he was talking about, but to kind of pull it into how do we apply that to our life. And you can today. go to the next slide, then. Oh, there's a slide for me. It feels special. So I'm going to talk a little bit about expectations um, and what we expect from God and what we expect from others is in direct correlation in how we view how God sees us. So in other words, like how God sees us and how we believe that he sees us is how we see the world and everything else. 
And so because of that, I'm actually gonna tell kind of a little bit of a story, but this past summer we um, went on like a big vacation with my family to California. And at the time, many of you probably remember Nadia, which was their German foreign exchange student. And so she and the rest of us had a lot of expectations for this trip because she had never been to America. So this was her trip to go to the Grand Canyon, go to um, Golden Gate Bridge, like all these different places, just see America, see a chunk of America in whatever time that we could. And we did see a lot and it was really fun. But as we were entering into this trip, there was kind of like this tension or almost this anxiety of like, what if it's not like we expect? What if we're disappointed? What if, you know, all these thoughts. And so I was really praying and asking the Lord, like, like how do we approach this? Like, I don't want to be filled with expecting so much every day that I'm like unhappy at the end of the day. And I felt like he was really speaking about something to my heart. And um, he was, I felt like he was sharing with me that he doesn't expect from me. Now, even just hearing that phrase, you're like, um, what does that mean? And let me just kind of talk about like what expectation actually entails. An expectation of someone is where you hope they're going to do something or you expect they're gonna do something, but it's kind of separated from who you are. Like it's, it's something you expect them to do for you, but you're not gonna necessarily help them fulfill that expectation. And so I feel like what he was really trying to share with my heart is you, like, I can't do anything apart from him. He knows, he doesn't expect from, he, he knows me. He knows what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. And so I'm going to go a little bit further into that um, because that was something I really had to wrestle through because it was just so, I had realized there were so many different things that I had felt that God was expecting from me that I didn't even realize that weren't even sometimes scriptural, just little things throughout the day. He expects me to do this. He expects me to be like this. And... Um, so just, like, his love doesn't set expectations for us to follow and to prove to him, but rather his um, love creates an invitation for transformation. So I'm going to kind of say that again, like, God doesn't set expectations for us, but his love creates an invitation for him to transform us. Um, and so because apart from him we can do nothing and so he transforms us with his love this is where we need to receive his love and let it transform us and so don't get me wrong his commands are essential and they're not to be ignored but we will never he will never expect anything from us apart from his love and grace I think sometimes we don't even realize it, but when we see his commandments or we see different things we're supposed to do, we automatically separate ourselves from the love and grace that he's going to create in us to be able to do. 
And so tying in with this story, if you look at these three different people, I, I believe just in the way that I interpret this story that the one with the one talent felt it even said, like even in Peter's paraphrase, like you were expecting these things of me. And I felt like it was unfair. He had this feeling that there was this expectation of him that he couldn't fulfill. And so instead of allowing that money to do its work, he just didn't fulfill the expectation because he didn't feel like he could live up to it. And oftentimes, I felt like God had all these expectations of me, even in scripture, the commands, and I felt like I can never live up to that. I can never do that. Kind of like what Peter was saying when he was young, and he's like, didn't really want to read the Bible because it's like, I can't do that. And so then you resort to either not doing any of it or you try so hard in your own effort to do it so much that you just end up being burnt out and exhausted and you're not truly connecting to the heart and intimacy of your creator. Um, Because the reality is he creates, he doesn't speculate. He's not sitting back here speculating what you're doing, what you're not doing, how you're doing it right, how you're not doing it right, but he creates in you. If you're going to receive him and allow him to create, that's what he'll do. If you reject him and push him away, then he won't have the opportunity to create in you. But it's not because he's sitting there speculating So just kind of an example, just in human relationships, Peter and I don't cheat on each other because of the contractual agreement or like our marriage license. It's because we love each other, because we have this intimate relationship where we don't need anything outside of that. And so, and we don't, enter into anything that would draw us away from that. Um, So I feel like it's very similar with our relationship with God, but oftentimes we treat it and we treat him in relation to us as just trying to fulfill the contractual agreement. Um, So kind of to wrap some of that up is the Lord's love doesn't expect, it accepts, heals, and transform, transforms. His love is limitless. And when we truly believe that God doesn't expect, but that he provides the very love he wants us to return, think about that. He provides the love that we are to return back to him in love towards him. Just like the story, he provided the financial means. He provided that wealth and abundance. It wasn't their own. So let's see, try to find my notes here. Okay. Um, And then our relationships with people don't become about unrealistic expectations that are given to serve our own gain, 
because that's typically what expectations end up being. Um, but rather, it's a giving of love and grace, and it produces fruit and multiplies based not on us or the other person, but on his love. So with expectations, obviously, in the world we live in today, we do need to have some expectations. Um, like, we don't provide everything, and we aren't God, so there is an element for us that we do need to expect things because we don't know everything. Um, but this should only be rooted in his goodness. We can expect his heart and character to be reflected and be multiplied as we learn to abide in his trust and love. We can expect his abundance to fill every void in our lives. And there's so many things that we can expect from God and his character, but not because of expectations he has for us, but because of him and his character. So he is who he is regardless of who we choose to be or what we choose to believe. But it's only when we do believe that we receive. Again, not because of our own doing, but because of his des desire to share it in um, the translation Peter read in this story, to enter into my joy. There's other translations that say, come and share in your master's happiness, in your master's pleasure. Um, so... Uh, desire to share um, in the pleasure and happiness, and then we must believe that he exists, like scripture says, but it goes beyond that. We must believe he rewards those who seek him. And I've been really thinking about that phrase a lot. Like, it's not just believing that God exists. Like, the person in the, the one talent, technically he believed his master existed. But he didn't believe that he was going to reward him for just simply seeking his na nature and seeking what he would have him do. Um, so the, the man with the wrong talent had the wrong expectations of God based on his own lack of character. It's really interesting in the story, he says, I've heard or I've known that you reap where you have not sown, which technically he was the one who had reaped where he had not sown. And so he was feeling th these feelings of like guilt and I don't know, like he was the reception of those talent or that talent wasn't in the sense of grace. He wasn't receiving it as grace to be empowered to create more. He was receiving it in this sense, like almost like, oh, I don't deserve this, but really I'm gonna make you think you didn't deserve this. Um, so he, and essentially he perpetuated his own failures and shortcomings on the character of his master instead of letting the character of his master transform his mind and perspective into creating and reproducing what he'd already been giving. He based his expectations on assumptions instead of, instead of, 
actually getting to know his master. Um, so I do have another kind of thought. Hopefully I feel bad if you guys are, it's getting a little long. Um, so another aspect of the character that I think is revealed here is the abundance. Every good thing we receive is abundance. Um, so we need to be looking for the abundance. In Christ, evil doesn't overcome good, but overcome, good overcomes evil. So even if, if everything is wrong or going wrong, in Christ there's abundance and comfort. If everything is going right, there's abundance of humility and grace and fun and friendships. God is always abundant and always gives abundantly no matter what it looks like. So the abundance you're receiving, that brings thankfulness and praise and that brings creativity and freedom. Um, so oftentimes we only see God as being abundant when we are receiving a lot or we feel abundantly blessed. But God is never lacking, even if we feel we are. Um, so nothing is lost in the kingdom. And I know that's hard for us to think about, especially when we feel like we lose so much here on earth. But in reality, we live in the kingdom realm and nothing is lost in the kingdom. It's only redeemed and further fulfilled than what we could ever imagine. So thinking back to this story, um, we often approach it with this need to produce and seeing our own lack, we identify a lot of times with the man with the one talent, even more so, because of that feeling of lack, that feeling of not being able to reproduce things the way that we intend to. But we don't often realize that it's never, it's never about reproducing the equal amount of what was given, um, or how it was produced, or why it needed to be multiplied, but it was to portray the character of God, like we've been talking about. Um, to give so abundantly of himself that everything he gives us is multiplied when we trust and believe in the master's faithfulness. But when the abundance given to us is not received, like I had kind of mentioned before, and we don't respond in the manner of allowing his love to work in our lives and produce the fruit he longs to bring us, um, that turns into us not actually receiving anything and having everything taken away. He already approves of us. He already takes pleasure in us. But it's when we trust and abide in the pleasure that we are about to take part and share in the master's happiness. So the two that did reproduce, they saw this as the master approving of them. Like, I'm entrusting you with this wealth. I approve of you. And because of that, out of that approval, they were able to freely invest, freely use that money in a creative way. He didn't set this strict regiment or guideline of exactly what they needed to do, 
but he knew that if he gave what they needed, he gave those seeds that um, needed to be planted, then that would be reproduced in the way that it was meant to be, regardless of how much money it made. Um, and so we need to know that there's abundance, whether or not we see the fruit right away. Um, let's see. Okay, so another thought with this story is like, I don't think the man's laziness is because he just sat around and did nothing. Obviously, this servant had to survive. He had to work. He had to live. He wasn't just sitting. He buried the money, so there really was... He wasn't actually using the money at that time. He, he had to work. And honestly, he probably labored even more because he was earning his own way of living at the time. Whereas the other two, like... They were investing, they were in this position, they probably had a lot more available to them because of the position that they were given. And so they probably, they were resting in the wealth of the master. And so I think sometimes we think like this guy was just sitting around waiting for the master to not come back. And in reality, I think really he probably was laboring pretty hard, like working pretty hard to make not, not even peanuts compared to the talent he was given. And I think that can just be a lesson for us too that we don't want to choose to work on our own instead of receiving the incredible honor that God has given us. Um, and the story is not trying to tell us to do more, but to see more, to know more, to receive more from him. It was never about the amounts or earning or working hard to achieve the prize, but it's always to share in the joy and the happiness of the master. We don't have to be enough because he is enough. There's always a deeper measure of his love to dive into, but it's not striving to do more or be more. Um, love is received in the heart before it can ever be reproduced. And this will involve doing. So I don't want to take that out of there. This will involve doing. We are to be doers of the word. But what we need to understand is everything we do isn't to be out of an expectation that God has for us that inevitably we wouldn't be able to meet. But it's out of something he creates within us that is naturally produced. And like I had mentioned, the money wasn't their own. It was given to them to multiply. They didn't earn any of it. They simply invested what they were given and they received even more. And the more abundance, like the even more that they received, was also the master's. <laughs> so it's like we act like, oh, the master, yay, he got more money. That more money was also his. So it, <laughs> it wasn't about like producing so much for him, but it was this partnership, 
partnership with him and this idea of sonship from him that really created this reproduction and multiplying and being fruitful. Um, so kind of about that sonship, like, I think that, like Peter had mentioned, the he was basically treating them like sons. And he was giving them, like, almost like this inheritance to look after. Like, you don't just do that to servants. And so I truly believe that the first two really did almost see this master as like a father figure. Like they wanted to, they wanted to honor the position that he had given them. Um, and so for us, like the only way we can reflect the father and become like him isn't to try and just become a carbon copy of him, but to know him and be his child and receive from him with faith like a child. And I think sometimes we hear um, what scripture says, says about being imitators of Christ. And we take that and we kind of twist it a little bit to mean, okay, I need to imitate everything that Christ did and I need to be exactly like him, but in my own strength. And the reality is when you have a child, their mannerisms, their facial features, their who they are is like you, but not because they're just trying to be like you. A good father or a good mother will want their kid to be like them only in the areas of their character and their love and their values, but they're not gonna force them to be exactly like them. They're not gonna say, do the exact same job, which there are parents like that, but that's often not characterized as a parent that you have a very close relationship with. And so, like, just an example of this, I was kind of thinking about this after I've been working at Country Inn and Suites, and I have coworkers there, and um, I don't try to be like my mom. Like, I don't ever try to be, and I just like, you know, I'm just myself, and I just do things, and sometimes I don't even notice I'm doing things or saying things, and um, a couple months ago, like, I introduced my coworkers to my mom, and they're like, you heard, oh my goodness, like, the way she just did her face like that, that's like you, oh my goodness, I see where you come from now, like, I get it, and so it's like just a five-minute interaction of seeing my mom, and like, hi, nice to meet you, they're like, that's where it comes from, and I'm like, I'm like, I do that, and they're like, oh, and so now they have like this reference in their mind for like, oh, Linnea does this like just like her mom. I'm like, you don't even know my mom. But they saw enough of her character and who she was, and they knew enough of my character and who I was to know that I was definitely her daughter. And I think that that just really kind of stood out to me because I felt like the Lord was saying, that's when we are just his children, and we just embrace being his children. Like, I didn't do anything special to be mom's child. I just ended up being her child and my dad's child. And so, like, and 
they were so loving and like when I was young and I would fall learning to walk, they didn't chastise me. But like, you know, as I grew up, they learned to know me and I learned to do little things, little mannerisms that are like them that I don't even realize it. And so like, instead of thinking about like, how can I copy God? It's like, we need to know him. We need to know that we're his child and know what that entails and allow our mannerisms to follow that. Allow our facial features, our little ways that we do things, our walks, our running, everything to be a reflection of who he is, not because we're trying, but because we've just been with him so long and we just are with him every moment of the day. And so we need to know that God is a good father and he's a good master. We can't, the truth must be realized, that truth of him being a good father must be realized if we are to understand what a good master he is. We don't need to try to be like him. Just receive from him and be with him and you'll realize that you're made in his image already, and you will also become more and more like him. Kind of like Doug and Abby said, like, become who you already are. Like, there's so much truth to that because we are his child, and we're becoming more like him because of that. And so this is our mirror to look into, but as we look into this more, we become a mirror of reflection of the Father to the world around us. And so, I think, should we disclose? Okay, we had a lot to cover today, so I'm sorry I went over, and, but um, Peter, I think we'll close us in prayer here as we ponder these things further. Yes, Jesus, we ask that through all that talking and all those things, that the kernel of truth would be set in each of our hearts. Who you are, God, is a good father, a good master, (laughs) the type of person who gives abundantly and brings up those who are forgotten, brings up those who you wouldn't think first to say, that's the person I would have set in charge of things. He looks at you and he says, I set you in charge of many things. You are faithful because you love me and you know me. Not because you did anything special, but because of our relationship. I've transformed you through that relationship. Come to know me better. He's knocking at each of our doors every day. And he's not asking, oh, did you do it right? Uh, did you try to get it all done? Did you do all this, the spiritual stuff that you thought you were supposed to do? Did you, did you make up those spiritual profit margins? He's saying, come, know me today. Come be with me. Sit at my table. Talk to me. Let's get to know each other even better than we did yesterday. It's what he's doing right now with each and every one of us at our hearts. So I just pray today that as we go out in this week, as we go out to this day, we would open that door to him, who he is, the reality of his spirit within us, and that we would know him deeply and see ourselves reflected in his word, and that others, as they see us, 
would see it coming off of us, pouring off of us, the abundance of who you, Jesus, is. In your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your gifts and talents, as we sometimes use the word talent with us. And like I said, there's a lot there. It's going to be on our Facebook page. The transcript will get that on our Facebook page so you can look at it some more. But also this, the audio will be on our SoundCloud so you can meditate on that some more. So much in there. It really is. I got a couple, I think, two nuggets that particularly the Lord... Now that's the thing with a, an audience this size. There's going to be all kinds of different things that the Lord will tell to different people. Not the same. But he wants to speak individually to each one of us. <clears throat> the groundhog did not, or did not see a shadow. So Pastor Dean told me today that that means he didn't get scared and run back into his hole. So that means that spring is coming quickly. I always wondered about that groundhog, what the deal was with the sun and not seeing the sh whatever. Well, now I know. I got revelation on that today, too. <laughs> so God bless you. We do have fellowship today, just not a meal. So you can share and pray. If there are needs you have, you can come forward. There will be ministers here to pray with you for whatever that is. In Jesus' name, have a great week. <clears throat>